Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. So, okay, this message is extra long because we're looking at how Jesus approaches the lost, specifically with the woman at the well. And we're taking Jesus' lead and we're approaching our community by making some very specific changes to the way we do ministry. We're all about serving our community and serving each other. And we're taking Jesus' lead on this. So yeah, it's a little long, but this is a good analysis of how Jesus expects us to approach people around us. Today, we're continuing this series that we started a few weeks ago, and we're kind of looking at how Jesus won people. So we're in week three of this series, and in fact, we've been looking at uh, how Jesus uh, interacted with several different people. Um, I'm not sure if I got the slide or not, but yeah, here we are kind of in this series. We started off talking about how Jesus called the disciples. Remember what he told them? It was simple. He just called them to do what? Follow, to follow me. And so we talked all that week about the disciples just dropping everything and following him and what following him looks like. It's obedience. And then last week, we talked about Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus. Nicodemus um, wasn't a direct follower of Jesus, but he was a scholar. He was a leader. He was a Pharisee. He was a religiously educated person. And instead of just the command of follow with Nicodemus he expressed the theology of what it looks like to be saved to know Jesus and so we kind of unpacked Jesus's mindset on what being born again really looks like and today uh, we're going to look at his interaction with the Samaritan woman and next Sunday we're going to talk we're going to look at a tough case right here next Sunday just giving you the heads up, this is a tough case right here. This one is one of our favorites. We all know this story. We all love this story. We're going to look at it today. But the rich young ruler story is a tough story. So next Sunday, uh, we're going to look at what happens when somebody walks away from Jesus. So that's going to be a really interesting one. Uh, I hope you're here next week for, for that one. But today, uh, we're going to look at Jesus and his interaction with the Samaritan woman. In fact, today we're going to kind of, this sermon is going to be a little different than the last two have been. Uh, we've kind of unpacked and walked through how Jesus interacted with those people. Uh, but today, I, I want to actually do what we say we're doing in this series. And I want to analyze Jesus's approach with the Samaritan woman. Okay, so, so today it's not quite going to be as much about what he said as as much as it is going to be about his approach because we all are on a quest to win people to Christ we've set a pretty high goal of reaching people for Jesus this year and so I want us to look at how Jesus actually goes about approaching someone who is far from him is that cool today yeah, okay, so we're going to look at that uh, today, and the story that we're looking at is in John chapter 4. It's right after John chapter 3 where Jesus talks to Nicodemus. I think it's no coincidence at all that John, the author of this gospel, puts Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman back to back in his story. 
And he puts them right together. He shows Nicodemus, who is at the top of his game, right? He's at the top of the echelon of all of the Jewish people. He's, he's the Pharisee. I know we have a bad rap. We kind of have a bad knock on Pharisees. But he's one of the religious elite. He's at the top of the ladder, right? And so he's the guy that everybody looks up to. And then right after that story is this woman at the well. And she is looked down upon by everybody Uh, she is kind of a societal reject and so what we see here that John is showing us I think right off the bat is that Jesus is for everybody no matter where you come from no matter what rung on the ladder you occupy Jesus is for everybody so let's look at the story today in John 4 and let's see what John tells us about Jesus's Approach. He had just had his encounter with Nicodemus, uh, but then soon, uh, as he was continuing his ministry down there just outside Jerusalem in the Judean countryside, his followers were growing more and more. He was teaching, he was healing, and his disciples were baptizing people right there just outside of town. But Jesus realizes that it's time now to travel back home, to travel back north from Jerusalem. Uh, up into the mountain region of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. It's where his ministry really kind of got started. It's where his uh, hometown is. It's where uh, all of his friends are, all of his connections are. They're going to return back to Galilee, and they have to go through Samaria on the way, sort of. In fact, here's what John says in John 4, 4. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, John says this thing that's really weird because all of us good Bible scholars know that this is kind of not true. I mean, you got, you got Galilee in the north, you got Samaria in between that and Jerusalem and Judea in the south. So you do have to go through, but you don't have to go through. You, you know the story, right? I mean, there's this big wedge that was driven between good Jewish people who lived both in the south and the north, a wedge between those good people and the Samarians, the Samaritans in the middle, right? The good Jewish people in the south and the north could not stand the Samaritans. They literally regarded the Samaritans as dogs. They hated the Samaritans because... In the 8th century B.C., uh, the, the land had been conquered and the people had gotten intermixed with other, other um, groups, other ethnic groups, other religious groups. And so they had kind of, in the, in the Sumerian area, the Samaritan area, they had kind of formed their own brand of Judaism, which wasn't pure Judaism. And the people in the north and the south, man, they really valued their relationship with God right and they really saw this as the most important thing about you and if it's corrupted then you're bad you're wrong and there grew to be this real enmity this real hatred between good Jewish people and Samaritans that's why when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan it would have been a a front against any good Jewish person person to make the Samaritan the hero of the story how dare he talk about these dogs this way it looks like the good Jewish religious elite people are the bad guys and the dog is the hero hello this is crazy 
So they hated these people in Samaria. And so a good Jewish person who was traveling from the north to the south or vice versa, they had a way that they would go the long way around. That They would travel around the area where the Samaritans lived so they wouldn't have to defile themselves by going through the area where the Samaritans were. But John tells us here in John 4, he says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And this doesn't really compute. It doesn't really make sense. Why, why would Jesus, a good Jewish person, have to go? I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like John's almost saying, you know, Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. We told him not to. We told him it was bad. That's where all the bad people are. But he just had to go there. You know, I kind of feel like on one hand, he might almost be saying something like that. But but much more than that, I feel like John is saying that Jesus had an appointment to meet. Jesus knew that he was called to go where things were difficult. Jesus had to go because Jesus had a divine appointment in this little town called Sychar. Uh, he could have just, you know, Jesus could have just um, arrived here in, on this, in this world, and he could have just told the story, you know, repent and believe. He could have gone to the cross. He could have died there. He could have rose again, and just whoever hears the story can just believe. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. I think John's telling us that he had to go through Samaria because, and this is the first blank on your page, Jesus seeks and saves. Jesus doesn't just come and put the good news up on a poster somewhere or stick it on a yard sign. Jesus comes and he seeks and he saves the lost. He is going after lost people. And on this day, he has a divine appointment that nobody else but him knew about because he seeks and he saves. So the next verses say this, eventually, John 4, verses 5 and 6, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. So they're traveling. They've been traveling all day. It's hot. It's hot outside, and they've been walking a long distance, and the disciples, the rest of the group with Jesus, they head on into town to go buy some food and maybe kind of hang out together, and Jesus alone decides to go and sit by this, well, he's tired. Another translation says, wearied from the long walk. You know what it's like to be weary? You know what it's like to be weary? Come on, do you know what it's like to have something just tire you out? So my wife and I, you know, the pretty lady that sings up here with a beautiful voice, she and I are now not just parents, but we're also grandparents. And we just had uh, our Alabama living granddaughter come spend the weekend with us. She's going home this afternoon, and it's been wonderful to have her there. And yesterday, yesterday, uh, we took her and our grandson, who lives here in town, uh, we took them over to Dawsonville and went to the trampoline park over there. Just let them run around and jump around and just, have, just burn off all that kid energy. And, uh, you know, I knew I wanted them to go play around. They got the big, deep foam pits. Have you seen the foam pits? You know what those are? So it's this pit that's filled with these foam cubes, and you basically take the kid and throw them in there. 
And they just go bloop, and they kind of disappear down in there, and then they have to work it to get out. And, and so I knew we were gonna, I knew we were gonna go play at the trampoline park. I'd been really looking forward to it, um, but I didn't realize that they would really want Grandpa to jump in the foam pit and play with them the whole time, jump around the trampolines and all the running around. I'm, I, I don't, I just hadn't figured out something about trampoline parks. We went there. We were the only grandparents there. Everybody else was little kids and their mommies and their daddies. And I hadn't figured out something because I'm in there. I'm jumping around with the kids. I'm in those foam pits. I'm about killing myself. Once you jump in a foam pit, it takes every muscle in your entire body to try to work your way out again. It's exhausting. And so I'm doing all that, and I'm noticing all the other mommies and daddies, they're just standing around watching. They're not jumping in the foam pit. They're not bouncing around on the trampolines. They're not throwing the balls with the kids. They're just Watching, And I'm like, what am I doing wrong here? And by the time we were done, we were there for about 90 minutes, and uh, the kids were tired. They were done with it. And I'll walk out to the car, and it's just all I can do to, you know, get the car started and go home. I'm just wore out. You know what it's like to be wearied in doing what you're doing? Do you know what that's like? Okay, let me ask you this question. Do you know what it's like to be weary doing ministry? You know what it's like to be wore out just doing ministry all the time? I know our staff feels this way. I have to occasionally give them a day off because sometimes, sometimes, you know, you know, our job in ministry is, is we can't have meetings much during the daytime with, you know, everybody because people work during the daytime. So most of our meetings are in the evenings. So our staff gets to the office in the morning, you know, and they work all day and then they have the meetings all night. And a lot of times, a lot of the time, a majority of the time, uh, we are uh, in a, such a situation where we don't have a night of the week off. You know, we're here Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, sometimes even on Saturdays all day, and, and then on Sundays, the big day. And, and so it's just all the time, all the time. So I gotta, sometimes I gotta be like, y'all just take the day off, just relax, just don't, I don't wanna see you at the office. This weekend is a great example of that because Jeff. And Stephen on our staff have been super highly involved with uh, Disciple Now this weekend. Annie also very involved. And so I've, I've just told him, you know, you got to just don't come to the office. I know you're wore out here. Here they are doing all the everything here after a long, long weekend. I'm like, just dude, you, you, got, you can't wear yourself out doing ministry too much. And so we know what it's like to be weary to just, just never have a break doing ministry. And we're looking at our calendar, and we're looking at stuff that's coming up. Easter is coming up in just a few weeks. In fact, here's what our Easter Sunday looks like. Uh, you know, we do Easter on the field every year, and we love it. Uh, but we got to get there on Saturday and start setting all the chairs and everything up. And uh, on Sunday, the whole team is playing on the stage, and it's just a lot of fun. There's Gary Wilder uh, rocking it out, and the kids sing and everything. And it's just, uh, we love our Easter. Don't you love? Easter on the field I love our Easter on the field it's a lot of fun it's going to be different this year we'll talk about that in a little bit but it's going to be different but it's kind of a big deal you know we'll have uh, anywhere from 800 to 1100 people uh, that will be there worshiping with us on that really cool Sunday morning uh, out there on the field and it's always just a great time we love it uh, but I'm not going to lie to you it kind of wears us out it's just a lot of work oh here's our favorite part our favorite part is when the kids have their Easter egg hunt and uh, 
this week, Diane received thousands of eggs. We got thousands of eggs in, brand new eggs. We dumped all of our old eggs, and uh, we got a bunch of new eggs. And it's just going to be a, a, a great, great, great morning having Easter on the field. And then that's not where the weary and the, and the working ends. Um, you may have noticed, like I have, uh, that our services have done this thing where they're crowding up, and then they're coming back down again and they're crowding up and they're coming back down again you may have noticed uh for three or four weeks in a row this early service even was really really packed on a sunday morning but now look at the empty seats we got empty seats around because we're bumping up on our absolute max capacity and we're falling back down again that's the pattern that you get in when you reach your capacity god keeps sending you people but you don't have room to put them and so what happens is and we watch this what happens is people come in the back door a little bit late and they walk around and can't find a place to sit and so they walk back out again or they pull in the parking lot and the parking lot is jam-packed full and they circle through once and then they're out and they don't stay and we're just not we're not doing a good job at keeping people that's why we're seeing this this attendance go up 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 and then come back down again and then up 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 and come back that's just what you get uh with all of that so um between Easter and all that going on, boy, our staff is working hard, and we're going to have to work a little bit harder because on April the 16th, the Sunday after Easter, we are going to return to our old schedule, our pre-COVID schedule of having three Sunday morning worship services because God keeps sending his people, and we are effectively, by not having room for them, saying, thanks, God, for sending his people, but we don't have anywhere for them. So sorry, God, our doors are closed. And we don't want to be like that. We want to just obey him. So we're going back to this schedule again, starting on April 16th, just so we can accommodate the people that God is sending us. And we don't, we don't inadvertently uh, and unintentionally turn people away. It's a heartbreaker. And so what all this means, we got changes that we're doing on Easter Sunday, and we got changes that we're doing every Sunday after that from here on out. And, and here's what we got. Our church is really, really good about people involved in ministry and most of you guys do that most of you guys are working in ministry you're serving you'll be in a church service but you're also on the safety team or you're also in the children's ministry or you're also on our first impressions team you do a lot of that stuff most churches have that 80 20 rule where you know 20 percent of the people do 80 percent of the work you know what i'm talking about most churches have that, but our church is really different. We're much closer to 60% of people serving in ministry than 20%. We're very, very blessed that you guys are really all about just giving yourself away. But here with all the changes we're going to have at Easter time and with a new schedule, man, we're going to need some extra hands on deck. Because I don't want, I've told our staff, I don't want any of you guys on any of your teams, on the Dot Life coaching team or on the First Impressions team or on children's ministry, I don't want anybody who's having to work every Sunday or having to work all services. That's just abusing people, am I right? That's just abusing people. So we, we aren't going to do that. So what that means is we need all hands on deck. We, we, we need help so that we don't make our good, faithful people weary in doing ministry. So I'm asking you guys, if you're not serving on a team now, 
try out one of our teams try it for a few Sundays we have a thing that we do here it's called a test drive and you can go and you can try out a team for a couple of weeks and see if it's a good fit for you and if it's not no big deal doesn't hurt our feelings try another team you know maybe you jump on the first impressions team that's where we make coffee we greet everybody we set the environment make sure everybody's happy and welcomed and warm and feel like that you're important to us and and maybe you jump on that team but you realize you're an introvert and uh you don't want to smile and greet anybody you want to sit like susan farnham frowning with her arms crossed what are you doing over there susan why are you doing that? i looked over there and i saw you i'm like what what am i doing wrong i love you susan i love you thank you for always providing our discussion questions you rock my world thank you very much (laughs) Um, but we we really need some help so here's what I'm going to ask you to do at the end of the service today uh, I'm going to invite you uh, to if if you are willing to just take a test drive to at the end of the service on your way to your car Instead of walking out that door, walk out this door, because right through here, we're going to have some tables and test drive cards and some people that you can ask questions. Tell me about the first impressions team. Tell me about the children's ministry team. Tell me about the safety team. You know, tell me about the Dot Life Coaching. This is one of my favorite teams, the Dot Life Coaches. They are people that are just there to interact with folks who are making a decision and moving to the next step in their spiritual walk. And we have about eight coaches right now, uh, and we probably need double that amount. We would really love it if we could get some more people who could be Dot Life coaches. So if you would, please, you don't have to serve every Sunday. Just, you gotta, I, I just need some help so that our people can do ministry. Uh, and be like Jesus because next blank on your page Jesus is willing to be wearied Jesus is willing to be wearied he's willing to walk that extra mile in the heat and be thirsty and hungry and he's willing to wear himself out in order to reach the people that his father wants him to reach I was listening to a song this week. I was listening to some old school Christian, really awful music from way back in the day, but it's some of my favorite stuff. I was listening to an old 1970s album from the Imperials. Does anybody know that group? Any old people like me? Yeah, okay. Old school. And they were singing one of my old, old, old school favorite songs. Uh, They were singing a song called What Can I Do For You? And the Lyrics just kind of rang in my ears as I was thinking about this. Uh, Here are some of the lyrics from What Can I Do For You. Uh, They're singing to God, and they're saying, It's taken all this time for my heart to be taught to say, Whatever you want, that's what I want too. It won't even up the score, but it's the least that I can do. I just want to know what I can do for you. I just love that song. It sounds to me like the place I want to be. I want to be always saying, God, what's, what's the next thing you want me to do? I may be tired. I may be hungry. I may be thirsty. But I just want to be available to you more than anything. Jesus is willing to be wearied. And I know what it's like to be wearied, but so does Jesus. He's been wearied too. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is... Um, 
He seeks and saves. And the second thing is that he's willing to be wearied. But next, let's look at this. Jesus crosses all the boundaries. He's sitting alone at this well by the edge of town. And in verse 7, uh, it says this, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. Now, this may seem like a simple little basic request, no big deal to us, but holy cow, this statement is a huge statement. When John wrote this, and when any good Jew read this, they would have been shocked at this statement by Jesus. Right here, we see Jesus crossing three very specific very, very rigid cultural boundaries. In fact, let's look at the boundaries he's crossed. Number one, he's crossing the ethnic boundary, right? The Samaritans and the Jews did not mix. If you were a good Jew, you would never be caught dead talking to a Samaritan. So there was an ethnic and cultural hatred between the two groups. The second boundary that he crossed was a gender hierarchy boundary, Men and women did not associate with each other in public. In fact, if you were a Jewish rabbi, you would never, never, never be seen talking to a woman in public, not even your wife, not even your daughter. You, you had to remain pure, holy, undefiled, and so you would not speak to a woman. This is how rigid this idea was. For good, good Jewish people, Jewish Pharisees would pray out loud in public and they would thank God for two things. Now, when they would pray on the street corners, Jesus hated this. When they would pray on the street corners out loud, they would pray, God, thank you for not making me a Samaritan. And also, thank you for not making me a woman. They would pray this prayer. I'm not kidding. And so here's Jesus crossing this ethnic boundary and this gender hierarchical boundary. The th I'm not kidding about this. You can look it up. The third one was a religious social boundary. Jesus, or sorry, Jews would never, never share utensils or dishes with Samaritans because to do so would be defiling against them. I mean, think about the way you think. Would you, would you crouch down next to your dog and eat the dog food out of the dog bowl? Would you do that? Of course not. That's gross. You would never do that. That's the way Jewish people thought about sharing dishes with uh, Samaritans. So Jesus crosses these boundaries to the shock and awe of any good Jewish person reading this story. He was not approaching her to preach at her. He was approaching her to make the gospel relevant by identifying with her. Jesus came right to where she was. He didn't come in there and pontificate and look down his nose and say, you are a filthy Samaritan woman that I should not even be around, but I'm going to tell you the truth. He didn't do that. He came right to where she was, and he got on her level, identifying with her he was willing to be vulnerable before her and he was willing to be real you know i hear it from time to time from my non-christian friends my problem with christians is that christians just aren't real 
Like, what do you mean? Can you touch them? <laughs> Can you see them? Can you hear them? I think they're real. I think they're really real. And they're like, no, Christians aren't real because I know they're not real because, you know, they just have this veneer of this fake holiness on them, you know, and they act like they're all, you know, holier than all the rest of us. Uh, they're like Pharisees in our day, you know. I'll know they're real when I hear them cuss. Really? That's the qualification for being real is that we use the same language as those in the world. I'm not sure that that's really where we should be. Jesus is willing to boldly go across the line and to cross those boundaries, but he never compromises his integrity. He never compromises his moral character. I want you to be real. I want you to be vulnerable. I want people to see the real, authentic version of you. But I don't think that that necessarily means that you need to compromise the integrity of your walk with Christ. I challenge you or anyone to find any example of anyone one to Christ by someone who is acting in unrighteous, immoral ways. It just doesn't happen. Dark can't win someone to light. It just doesn't work that way. Can I get an amen? I remember a few years back, I was invited uh, by some friends of mine to go on a motorcycle ride uh, that these people were putting on. They were friends of mine who had started a ministry to the hardcore bikers in our community, the one percenters. And so they were starting this ministry, and they were doing these rides to engage with these hardcore guys that were far, far, far from Christ. And so, Steve, why don't you come with us? It's one of our first rides. We'd love for you to come with us. You can kind of be the chaplain, and you can pray over the whole thing. I'm like, great. I would be glad to do that. So uh, on the Saturday of the ride, I went down to join them at the spot where we were supposed to meet, and uh, they all started gathering, and... um, I just got to tell you, I was with those ministry people who were ministering to the hardcore bikers, and with those ministry people, um, Scott can tell you a little bit about it. I, he, he wasn't there that day, but he knows those guys. Um, I've never heard the F word more out of anyone's mouth than I heard from those ministry guys. I, I never heard God's name taken in vain more than I have than from those ministry guys. I, I've never seen attitudes as bad as I saw out of those ministry guys. Here I am trying to cross a boundary with light into darkness to rescue people out of that darkness, and here they are wallowing in the darkness. And so I rode with them that day, and honestly, when the day was over, I was just done with them, and I said, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that group of people again, because I don't believe that you're ever going to win anyone to Christ by betraying Christ. How can, you, how can you win somebody to somebody that you don't seem to have a relationship with yourself? You be the person that God has called you to be. You have your flaws. You have your brokenness. Sure, he's rescuing you from that. But you run to the darkness and shine your light. You are, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. 
I'm not asking you to be fake and I'm not asking you to be holy. I'm just asking you to be real and to show your faults as you need to, but show Jesus through those faults in your life. Does that make sense? So Jesus, Jesus crosses the boundaries, but he never compromises his identity. And the Samaritan woman at the well recognized this. In verse 9, she says, she's surprised, for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she says to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Why are you asking me? Why are you even talking to me? You shouldn't even be talking to me, let alone asking me for a drink. But Jesus wasn't about to let cultural boundaries keep people from God. Jesus was willing to boldly cross all boundaries to get to the people that he is after. Next blank on your page is that Jesus won't be defined by your boundaries. Jesus isn't going to be defined by your boundaries. He's going to cross whatever boundary he's got to cross. And so he gets there, he gets to this woman, he engages with her, and he begins to kind of ease into a conversation. So he asks her for a drink. She's shocked by this. Why are you talking to me? And why are you asking me for a drink? And in verse 10, his response is, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living Water. Jesus is pointing to something more than just water, right? He's trying to ease into this conversation, saying, I've got something for you that's better than what you could possibly give to me. You know, most people have no idea that Jesus wants to give them an incredible gift. Most people don't realize that Jesus says, I have come, in fact, in John 10, 10, that the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Another translation says abundant life. Jesus has an amazing gift to give each of us. In other words, we're born with a thirst that only he can quench. We're born needing water that only comes from him. And he wants to give us this wonderful gift of abundant life. He wants you to experience power and peace and the presence of the holy creator God in your life every day. But she doesn't get what he's saying just yet. In fact, in verse 11, she says, But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living? You say you've got water for me. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this? Well, how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus is moving the conversation to the spiritual. He's trying to show her that I know you're looking for something. I know you're here at this well. You're looking for something. You have a thirst, but it's a worldly thirst, and you're searching. You know that you need something, but what I have to give to you is better than what you're going to get from any of this world's wells. 
So he's trying to show her this, and she's starting to see it, but she can't quite see it just yet. In verse 15, she says, please, sir, give me this water. Okay, there's hope here. She wants the water that Jesus has to offer. And here's what she says, but then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. She's kind of starting to see it, but she doesn't see it just yet. There's hope, but she still doesn't get it. Jesus isn't talking about physical water. He's talking about new life. Remember with Nicodemus, he talked about longing for the water of life. Just like you long for the water in the desert, you long for the spirit in your life. He's talking about that, and she's concerned about plumbing. She's concerned about making sure that she has water that will quench her physical thirst. But he wants to give her the one thing that she really needs. In other words, next blank on your page, you're analyzing Jesus. He used context to get spiritual. He used the context he was in, hot, day, weary, woman alone, looking for water at this well he's using the context to get spiritual i think it's easy for us christians to kind of fall into the trap of meeting people's immediate needs of getting the physical water to them really well but not meeting their spiritual needs i think it's easy for us to think that just because we left a big tip for the waitress just because we handed out food at Tower Road, just because we sang good songs at Disciple Now, you know, just because we go on the mission trip and we built a house, just because we do those things that we've somehow quenched their spiritual thirst, made them whole and complete, but we haven't even shown them the truth of the gospel. I think churches, I think churches fall into this trap, you know, like, like a lot of churches do. We fall into this trap of preaching sermons and giving seminars about how to have a better marriage or about getting your finances in order or about having good, healthy relationships in our lives. And all these are good. All these are important things. We all need to help the people around us with all these important things. But look at what Jesus says here in John 4, 14. Again, look again. He says, those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring, giving them eternal life. He's talking about something much, much, much more than just drinking from the well of the world not just helping with food or with marriage or with finances but he's talking about creating a whole new spring of water that bubbles up giving eternal life here's the way we say it here at the orchard church we say that without the gospel all you have to give is law I've heard a lot of sermons from a lot of preachers who preach very grace-sounding sermons, but they don't include the gospel, the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection for you. And so since they don't include the gospel, Jesus healing us and forgiving us, then all they have, it sounds really graceful, but all they have is work harder, try more, do more stuff, work it so that you'll get better. Listen to me, it may sound graceful, but that is a law message 
disguised as grace. Without the gospel, all you have is law. The gospel is the lens, it's the focus, it's the purpose, and the gospel is for everybody, for the lost person and for me. I've known Jesus ever since I was a high school student, but I still need to be reminded of the gospel all the time. I still need to be reminded that I was made in his image, but that I rebelled against him, that I became a sinner committing crimes against a holy God, a treasonous criminal. And the punishment for treason is death. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. I'm spiritually dead without him, and I'm under the death penalty. And I deserve swift and severe punishment. That's what I've earned in my life. But that God loved me so much that he sent his son to take all the pain and all the shame and all the blame for my sin on himself. And with no sin of his own to pay for, he went to the cross. The wages of sin is death. He didn't deserve death, so he died in my place. God punished his own son for me. He took my punishment in his own body, dying for my sins. And proving that his death was good enough three days later, He's paid for it all, so he rose from the grave, and he lives today to call me back home. Follow me. Come to me. Come back to the Father. You were stolen from him. Let me make you new. Let me redeem your life and return you to that beautiful image that he created you to display. Can I get an amen? What that means is the gospel changes everything. Our good deeds don't change everything. The gospel changes everything. Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins and rising again, that changes everything. We just use these marriage and finances and food and all that stuff so that we can be a tool to create context so that we can share the good news of the gospel. How do we get, how do we get to the point where we feel like the Christian life is a heavy, burdensome, dreary lifestyle that we have to endure. If you come to Jesus, anybody here, except maybe Susan, knows that when you come to Jesus, you experience a rich, satisfying life. <laughs> You're not doing that anymore, I notice. You're smiling very beautifully over there. Now, if you come to Jesus, you experience a rich and fulfilling and satisfying life. So here's what I'm asking you. What well are you drinking from? What well are you, are you drinking from the world's wells? Are you drinking from those things that you feel like give you life, but it's just temporary and you got to keep going back? Are, are, you, are you drinking from the well of eternal life that he has for you? Or are you bent over eating with your dog, eating his dog food? What well are you drinking from? What plate are you eating from? Drink from the well of the cool, refreshing, life-giving water. I'm tired of Christians who are doing good deeds, giving a big tip, or building the house in Kenya, but not sharing the gospel because we're shortchanging ourselves and we're shortchanging everyone around us. And most of all, we're shortchanging God because he's out to get back what was taken from him. 
That's why Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work. It's the power of God at work. Stop telling me you're waiting for some kind of other power. If you're in the gospel, you're in the power of God at work, which is saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Gentile. It's not, it saved everyone. It is now saving you. It is changing you and making you new. It is Christ in your life convicting you of sin and bringing you closer and closer to the father so it goes on it goes on let me read the next part of this this good news this gospel it tells us how god makes us right in his sight this is accomplished from start to finish by faith as the scriptures say it's through faith that a righteous person has life it's through faith that a righteous person it's through faith you hear me it's through faith it's not through your good deeds your good deeds come as a result of your faith. They don't lead you into faith. Does that make sense? It's not, through, it's not through your church attendance. You know, it's not through you being nice to the waitress at the IHOP. It's through faith. It's through trusting in that sacrifice that Jesus made and actually living your life as if it was for real and that it's changing you. So Jesus wants this power to not just change you, but he wants it to change this woman at the well. But she can't quite hear it just yet. So Jesus takes the conversation to the next level. You, you like this? Jesus takes the conversation to the next level. He doesn't see that she doesn't quite get it yet, so he backs off. He sees that she doesn't quite get it yet, so he presses in. And here's what he says. He says to her, go and get your husband. Go and get your husband. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. And so Jesus says, well, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. So you certainly spoke the truth. Dang. Can you imagine if we took this approach today? Yeah, you're a sinner. I can see how much sin you have. You need to get right. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine that? It's like Ray Comfort doing his witnessing videos. Have you watched those in your life group? Yeah, so Ray Comfort doesn't have a problem at all talking to people and saying, okay, well, let's just, let's just measure your life through the grid of the Ten Commandments. And within just a few minutes, he's like, okay, so what you just told me is that you're a liar, a fornicator, a blasphemer, and a thief. So do you think that you're good still? And they're like, uh, maybe not so much. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus does this, and it's the next mic on your page. He gave her the bad news. He gave her the bad news. He was willing to be upfront with the bad news. He exposed her own sin to her. And I saw this in an in a, uh, article I read this week. It says this, A gospel that says, Come to Jesus, presenting him as your new best friend, is not the New Testament gospel. We say it this way here at the Orchard Church. We say that the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. If Jesus just wants to be your friend, well, that's good news, but it's not a big deal. But if we tell people that we are sinners going to hell because we've earned judgment from God, but that Jesus loves you and died in your place, now, holy cow, that's good news. And Jesus comes to redeem you from the bad news. 
So he reveals her sin to her, and that's when she starts to really clue in. I've got to move through this quickly. In John 4, 19, she says, Sir, you must be a prophet. Okay, all right, I'm starting to clue in here. There's something more going on in this conversation. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors Worshipped. In other words, she's saying, why do you religious people there in Israel, why do you major on the minors? Why has it always got to be about what mountain? Why has it got to be about what rock? Why has it got to be all the details? Why are you focused on these details, rules and regulations? And Jesus' response is this, believe me, woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this hill or in Jerusalem. He says the time is coming and indeed it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I wish I had time to really crack this open and talk about what Jesus is saying, but he's saying that you know that it's not about the rules and regulations. Because of the new covenant, it's no longer about all the rules, what, what you wear, what animal you sacrifice, what day you go to the temple, what you observe and how you observe it, which specific prayers you pray, you pray what mountain you pray him on. It's not about that anymore. It's about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. It's about you becoming a person of true worship whose life is an act of, of worship to him that's what this is really all about she starts cluing in and she says this i know the messiah is coming the one who is called christ and when he comes he will explain everything to us and then jesus tells her straight up for the first time jesus says it out loud i am the messiah and she left her water jar look at verse 28 through 30 she left her water jar and ran back to the village telling everyone she just dropped it and she ran, and her life was different. She starts telling everyone, come see a man. She starts telling everyone about Jesus. She can't hold in this new relationship that he has with Jesus. In fact, they all, as a result, came streaming from the village to see him. This woman was rejected. Nobody wanted to be around her, but yet now, all of a sudden, they're responding to her. Something is different about her now. She's living a changed life. That's what Jesus does, is he changes your life. That's what he does, is he brings you from darkness into the light. And he changes you. Are you different now because of Jesus than you were before? Really quickly, I gotta wrap this up, I know, but I gotta tell you the story, it's so good. John Newton, John Newton was born in a Christian home, but both of his parents died when he was only six years old, so he had to go live with a relative who hated God. A relative who was always mocking Christianity. And John Newton was neglected and abused in that house as a child. When he was a little older, a teenager, he ran away from home, uh, his new home, and he became a sailor and fell into the way he describes it gross sin. He lived an openly rebellious life against God. And he went from one job to another uh, on his, in his sailing career, from one boat to another. And each one seemed worse than the last. He was mistreated, abused, and he ran farther and farther away from God. John ended up working on a slave ship. 
And one time he broke into the ship's rum supply and he got so drunk that he fell overboard. His life is a disaster. And the only way he survived falling overboard is that some other crew on the, on the ship, they recognized that he was floating overboard. So they decided to rescue him by shooting a harpoon at him. And they harpooned him in his thigh and they dragged him back to the boat. And as the ship was nearing its port in Scotland, he was down below. They had relegated you. You know, you're just a drunk and you're worthless. You go down below in the hold with the slaves and you work the pump. So in the darkness for days, he's down there pumping with the slaves. And as they're coming close to Scotland, coming close to land, he remembered the Bible verses that his mom taught him when he was very, very young. They spoke of God's grace and his love and of sending his son to sacrifice himself for us. And there in that dark, dark hold, he cried out to God and he was born again. How do we know he was born again? Because his life was changed. As soon as they got into port, he got off that ship and he went into town, got cleaned up, and he found a church home where he began to grow and become more and more like Christ. He went on to be greatly used by God as a notable preacher and a great writer of songs, a trophy of God's amazing grace, because he would do nothing but talk about it. Come see this man who's changed me. One of the songs he wrote says this, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And the evidence of knowing Jesus is a changed life. And Jesus loves this. Jesus loves this. Uh, in John 4, uh, after the woman runs back to town, the disciples are like, what the heck just happened here? You're talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well? Here, eat some food. <laughs> it's really weird, the conversation they have. And Jesus says this. He says in John 4, 34, he says, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say wake up and look around. The fields are ripe. They are ripe for harvest. My nourishment comes from this. This is what fulfills me. In fact, last blank on your page, Jesus is fulfilled by telling others. The fields are ripe for harvest. It's all around us. They are ready. The Holy Spirit has already been working in lives all around us. And he says, pray that God would send workers into the harvest field. Is that us? My prayer is that we, like Jesus, will be fulfilled by telling others the good news of God's grace. 